Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a weekly mess of crypto buzzwords, finance follies, and big ideas. We're your hosts, Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, and we'll examine the fascinating, bizarre, buzzworthy, and downright cringeworthy world of crypto. Love it, hate it, we don't mind either way. We're just here to grind some gears. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Chill, chill, chill. What's up? (laughs) Oh, not too much. I'm sitting here with six cans of LaCroix in front of me, just staring at Coinbase Pro, deciding what to do next. (laughs) Oh, boy. X out of the screen, baby girl. X out. <laughs> okay, I'm Xed out. I'm Xed out. You got my full attention are you, now. Are you, uh, are you tax loss harvesting? <laughs> okay. No, I'm hodling. Obviously, Meltem. Come on. <laughs> All right, let's get right into it. Um, this week, we, you know, it's been an interesting time. Uh, crypto land is starting to see the cracks forming. And as we've talked about on prior episodes of this podcast, we're starting to see the interesting reality of what happens when technology meets finance, meets venture capital, meets capitalism, period. And now and above all, what happens when crypto meets the real world, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> and this episode, we really want to focus on DeFi, just like the old Fi. Because unfortunately, what happens when you create new products, tools, services, markets, even though you may have brilliant ideas, at the end of the day, financial markets are the most heavily regulated in the world. And yeah, I mean, we're seeing this play out now more than ever, I think, as token projects, all of those smart ideas that launched with utility tokens and, uh, you know, whatever shitcoin involved in their their protocol and their mechanism design, they're all starting to realize that maybe what they did was not so legal and is maybe not going to fly under, be it U.S. regulations or other jurisdictions. And, you know, the example of that that we've seen, I think, most recently and sort of most latently is that of Basis, right? Who this past week announced that they were folding, they were going to return all remaining money to their investors, which included the likes of Bain Capital Ventures, uh, USV, I think, Polychain, Andreessen, you name it, they were in it. It was the hottest Um, club deal of the year. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. And, you know, the reason that they're giving for the return of funds is that they believe that they can't pull off what they set out to do, given the regulatory environment. So I I think there's, to me, there's two takeaways here. Um, The world of... Silicon Valley. And I I do believe a lot of the ethos of venture capital has been predicated by the last 10 to 15 years of Silicon Valley investor behavior and Silicon Valley investment ethos. What I think is interesting here is in the past with Uber and Airbnb, I think the model was don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. The problem is, is that when you do that with financial regulations and financial rules and laws, that's not going to work. Because if you defy those laws, you are going to wear an orange jumpsuit at a place called Rikers. (laughs) And for your average crypto moon boy, that's probably not a great ending to the story. Yeah. I mean, like it or not, post-2008, basically fucking with financial regulations is very different from what Airbnb did with housing regulations and yes. tax law and what Uber did with, you know, taxi medallions. And, you know, this isn't something that is isolated to crypto. We see this across the fintech space. It's hard. Look at the lending and world. We saw this, right? Look at what happened. The lending the- world. I was going to say Robinhood. Yep. Like Robinhood announced this past week that they were going to be giving out loans at a 3% interest rate to whoever. And they had said in their announcement that Sipsy was insuring them. 
And, you know, the regulator and SIPSI themselves came back and they were like, oh, we don't know the first thing about this. Robinhood has since had to take down the website. They had to retract the announcement and they've basically had to go back to the drawing board, which if you ask me, that's a way bigger embarrassment than anything that Basis did in the last two weeks. And that's saying something. Well, I don't don't want to talk about Basis. I feel like there are a lot of things I could say, but um, this episode isn't about Basis. I think... There's, there's two sides of the story, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about the startups here and the mentality of startups and the people investing in them. I also want to look at this from the perspective of the regulators, because I think a lot of times people don't understand who regulators and enforcement agents are and what they're thinking about, what their mental model, what their brain space looks like. So, so let's start with the entrepreneurs and the investors who somehow believed that because crypto was much decentralized, they could defy financial regulation. Let's let's just focus on that for a bit and then shift to the regulators. So again, I think there was this pervasive mentality that for the first time in a long time, crypto was going to be a revolution. And I know we've talked about this idea before, this duality, where I feel like a, a portion of the crypto communities in this revolution camp where they're screaming down with the banks, short the bankers, <laughs> long Bitcoin. And I confess, that's a really attractive narrative. And I myself, when I first got into Bitcoin, that that was my main rallying cry. But in reality, I think we've found it really is more like evolution, where I think we're starting to realize if we want this to work, we have to work from within the system. We have to work hand in hand with the bankers. And crypto isn't going to be an institutional asset class. Prices aren't going to go moon if we try to go the revolution route. Revolution route equals pain. Evolution route equals money raining from the sky. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I I don't, again, I don't think that this is isolated to, you know, the kind of crypto regulatory arbitrage that all of the entrepreneurs in this space attempted. I think that this applies to fintech in general. Like, I can't think of a major fintech startup that at some point has not gotten itself in some amount of regulatory hot water. And that's without them having this sort of anarchist rallying cry, right? Like, I I think that the space is just a minefield. And, you know, I think that anyone who comes into it and naively thinks that they're going to create a startup and move fast and break things is just sorely mistaken, because that's not how financial markets work. That's not how financial infrastructure work. And that's definitely not how financial regulation works. Not in the US and not in the developed world, I would say. Maybe there is opportunity in some of the developed being world, I think we have seen instances like um, Barbados, like Bermuda, the Isle of Man, Mauritius, the Seychelles, <laughs> places that historic the Marshall Islands. Jesus, <laughs> Let, let's not go there. That that makes me sad. It actually makes me very sad. Um, me too, but yeah. but I think we have seen these instances where people are saying, "Okay, I'm looking at sort of regulatory arbitrage." and opportunities around the world. And instead of focusing on operating in these jurisdictions, like say perhaps the US, where there are, you know, there are very strong precedents. There are hundreds of years of financial regulation. There's case law. There's prior fintech startups that have tried similar things um, that set this this precedent that feels makes it feel like some business models or some and product offerings may be infeasible or the challenges may be insurmountable. They go to these other places. My fundamental challenge is what we saw uh, with Malta. So historically, European fintech startups have found Malta an attractive home. Very recently, the European Union has kind of countered this where they've started to refuse access to the European banking passport to companies based in Malta. And I think there is this interesting paradigm where people seem to believe that if you escape rules and regulations, you'll be able to do so in perpetuity. But at the end of the day, I think if regulators really want to stop activity, they will find those points of centralization, bank accounts, um, servers, places where infrastructure, where rubber hits the road, where infrastructure is based, and they will attack those points to uh, prevent you and your service from reaching their constituents. That will happen. It is happening. 
Yeah. 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 No, I know. And you know, that's, that's going to continue happening and that's going to continue to create even bigger frictions for anyone who thinks that they're just going to pull off some jurisdictional arbitrage or regulatory arbitrage. But I do want to return. I know you don't want to get into it too much here, but I do want to return for a second to the issue of the Marshall Islands because I had a conversation with a friend the other day that just highlighted to me how regulators and how sort of anyone working in government or policy must feel when the subject of crypto comes up. So for those who haven't been following, in a way I hope you haven't, because this is one of the biggest bullshit stories of the year, the Marshall Islands, at least some of their government officials, were pitched by this Israeli startup uh, to launch a cryptocurrency, a sovereign cryptocurrency. Um and you know, to me, this strikes me as probably a complete and total scam because this is some private sector company offering to basically perform an ICO on behalf of this nation state that has way bigger fish to fry. The Marshall Islands is one of the countries that is literally going to sink underwater first among us if climate change is not resolved. So one of my good friends is actually a senior policy advisor to the Marshall Islands. And I sent her this Bloomberg article that came out earlier this week detailing the issues of the Marshall Islands and their cryptocurrency. And verbatim, her response was, LOL, sorry, don't have time to read this right now. Can't engage with that hullabaloo trying to pass a climate change act. And to me, that was, and like, she wasn't being rude. Like she's actually just really busy trying to save this country, you know, along with everyone around her from sinking into the ocean. But that to me just so perfectly summed up how anyone working in government policy regulation must feel when the subject of crypto comes up, Mm -hmm. just like, LOL, I don't have time to deal with this hullabaloo right now. Please make this go away. We've got bigger shit to do. We've got bigger fish to fry. That is, I cannot tell you. So unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, um, I have spent in the last six months and over the last four years that I've been professionally doing this crypto thing, a significant amount of time with individuals at the SEC, the CFTC, FINRA, DOJ, and other places. And in the last (laughs) six months, in friendly, casual conversations with some of these individuals, I really feel bad for them because they tell me, that for the last year, really, they have had the craziest people come knocking on their door, demanding meetings, law firms that they used to trust and respect, bringing literal Looney Tunes people into their offices to pitch these insane schemes that just are, in their eyes, so far outside even the remotest interpretation of what's permissible under U.S. securities law and U.S. markets law, that they are just, I feel like they're at their wits end. And they really have a lot to deal with. As you said, the U.S., the SEC doesn't even really have enforcement power anymore. They are on a small budget. The IRS is on a small budget our government is trying to deal with all of these different economic issues. And here you have this tiny $100 billion industry that's consuming 90% of their time and these insane screaming for more attention. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so um, I fully agree. I think what I would love to see going into 2019, number one, like read the damn rule book. Just read it. Like US laws are not going to change. They're not going to. That's and been made clear. Out for a lawyer. Like, I, I hate to but say it one. because the lawyers always win, but the lawyers will again win in this market and it's no, worth no, no. it. The lo- Some of the lawyers I talk to, though, they promise the moon. They promise crazy things. And I'm like, whoever's giving you counsel, don't listen to them because they're giving you really bad counsel. I yeah, think a lot of the choice... Them. We've seen a lot of bad counsel. Let's be real. Some of the things I see people announcing or saying publicly, I'm like, please get get a different lawyer. Help your help help yourself. <laughs> I, I, so uh, another short little anecdote here was I was at the talk a few weeks ago in which Andrew Ross Sorkin was interviewing uh, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton, and during the Q and A period, it was honestly it was just embarrassing because. All of the audience Q&A, pretty much, I would say probably seven or eight out of the 10 questions they took was people asking SEC Chairman Jay Clayton in front of this audience of several hundred people 
very specific questions about, well, you know, so I'm working at this company and we did an ICO and it was structured like this. And I just wanted to know if that would pass your test or if that's decentralized enough. And like Andrew Ross Sorkin and, and Jay Clayton are sitting up there on stage and they're like, um, you know, you might want to just like shoot an email to your lawyer and like the relevant folks at the SEC and handle this offline. But like, if that was happening, you know, just with the audience Q&A at this talk, I can only imagine what whatever email address it is, like info at sec.gov. Well, they said they set up a separate entity with Val's Panic at the head of it for this purpose. And again, I think, you know, is it, you is, I it were, a, uh, is it a Google form, Melton? Is it taking after not, the Coinbase Google form for it's listings? It's not a Coinbase Google form. <laughs> but they had to set up a separate arm just to deal with this. And I think this, and it's like you said, it's like the elevator door button, right? It doesn't actually do anything, but it makes people feel like they did something. I might yeah. comment with the SEC announced the formation of that body was we're now going to start seeing SEC endorsed on pitch decks. And when that day comes, oh I, I will need a lot of wine. Um, but, Have but you I think seen that? I, I actually did see it on one pitch deck. I saw an SEC logo and I just, I lost it. Oh, Jesus. And some days I, I just, I, it's noon, something comes across my desk or hits me on email. And I'm just like, oh, for fuck's sake, like this day is canceled. This day is over. I have to go process the infinite I'm going to get in bed, get back under the covers and pretend this never <laughs> happened. It's like, it's like, it's like Groundhog Day. Let's pretend it never happened. Actually, no, it's living the same thing over and over again. What am I saying? Um, <laughs> but here's the other thing. Okay. So I'm going to say, three things in response to what you said. So number one, this SEC agency, you've made the point before. For example, when Coinbase said they had this Google form that they announced in this, you know, over dramatic way, you mentioned that's like the elevator door close button where it just gives people something to press, but it doesn't really do anything. And I think part of this is the SEC just trying to stem the flow of crazy because they just want to do their jobs. Securities laws exist for a reason. They've existed for a long time and they'll continue to exist in their current form for a long time because they're actually quite elegant. And in regards second to that event you're speaking about um, with Jay Clayton and Andrew Ross Sorkin, you and I were both at a dinner after with a lot of the people who are at the talk and people from our industry and from the asset management and sort of capital markets industry. And downtown Josh Brown, <laughs> who who I like, he's entertaining. Um, I'm not sure he likes me. He said unflattering things about me, but that's okay. At some point, everyone does. Um, he had a great blog post he wrote about that event where he pointed out something, um, and, and we'll link it in the show notes because I thought it was actually really on the money. And his point was that at that event, when people had Q&A, they weren't interested in asking questions. They were commenting and offering their opinion. And the SEC don't care none. The SEC, these people aren't elected. They're appointed. It's If you think about this from a game theoretical perspective, and everyone in crypto proclaims to be this game theory guru, like put your little game theory hat on since you're so good at it. And why don't you just think about what in it for any SEC commissioner. They have no incentive whatsoever, whatsoever to change anything. They only have disincentives. Totally. Especially in this political climate. So I think that that to me is the, the second thing is like, there is no carrot here. There is only sticks. And why would you change anything? People just need to figure out how to operate within the existing framework. It's not a revolution, not in the US. It, it won't be. And definitely not if you're raising hundreds of millions of dollars from accredited investors and some of the world's largest investors who, by the way, have legal teams that will run circles around you for many years to come. So that's point two. And then I think point three really is, I wish that people would just take a moment and I, I, you and I struggle with this, but we have each other and we have friends. But I wish people would just take a moment to step out of their own body, their own world, and just think about the words coming out of them. Just, just take a step back. Think about the words coming out of the, your mouth. Think about the Listen person you're yourself. saying them to. Please. And again, I went to this event with uh, Val's Panic, who... You know, I do feel for her. She has to now deal with all of the SEC crypto crazies. And at that event as well, people would raise their hands to pretend to ask questions, but they're really commenting and asking for guidance. And I'm like, this poor individual has come here on her own time to try to engage with the ecosystem. And 
I feel like they are going a long way to learn. And I do think that individuals at the SEC and the CFTC and FINRA and other places are very educated about the topic. They are compared to most people I speak to in enterprise who claim to do quote unquote blockchain. Like these people have taken the time to learn and understand. And I think it's very offensive when you go into someone's world and you take zero time to try to understand what it is they do. Because at the end of the day, life is about context and relationships and understanding the game you're playing and who you're playing it with. When you sit across from an SEC commissioner and you go into that conversation with zero concept, knowledge, even desire or respect for what it is they've done for the last 15 years of their career, that's never going to go well. And it makes us all look, it's offensive. It makes us look bad. It's just embarrassing. It's just right. Agreed. Yeah. I I mean, I, I think that a few points on that. One is it makes me appreciate and understand just what a unicorn, how unique John Carlo is at the CFTC because he is someone who, as you say, like has very few carrots going on out there for him to be incentivized to continue to beat the crypto drum. And yet he does because he's just into it and like believes in it and gets the vision. So, you know, throwback, throwback Thursday here. Thank you, Crypto Dad, for for staying with us. Crypto Um, Dad. Um, I remember hashtag Giancarlo rally. I I agree. I thought he was great. And I think similarly, Hester Pierce at the SEC has been very progressive in her her thinking. I don't know if that sentiment, I don't believe that sentiment shared by the entire agency, but I do feel that she's been trying to reach some middle ground. But on that note, few things piss me off more, few narratives piss me off more than the narrative that like all regulators just have no idea what they're talking about. And it's like agree. They have so much bigger shit going on. And yet the fact that they're able to keep pace when you start talking to them about a SAFT and these different ICO models and Swiss foundations and all of this bullshit that we've all made up just in the last three or four years, like that's pretty damned impressive. And we should pay some more respect to that. And also, as you say, pay some more respect to, you know, what their experience is and like what they're bringing to the table. Like, you know, just because you can cite the the four points of the Howey test doesn't make you an expert in their field. <laughs> no. And again, there's, it, there's historical context. What I go back to is if you're going to the regulators and you are asking for, for something outside of the norm, it is up to you to do the work. And that doesn't mean you go to them and you accost them and you say your view of the world is wrong. You go to them and you say, look, we've spent an extensive time amount of time, pardon, looking at the precedents, looking at these cases throughout history, looking at these examples. While we understand X, Y, Z, here's our view. Here's how we could work together. I, I don't see that happening and it upsets me because it's it's counterproductive. But anyways, we could go on about this for a long yeah, time. So let's, let's, let's move to let's get into it though. Like what are the regulators saying? <laughs> to me, I've heard a few things, right? One sure. is that, you know, it, in some sense, most crypto assets out there today will be deemed securities. That having been said, the outs that I've heard about are basically they come down to utility and decentralization. Um, now, what exactly that means, it feels like jury is still a little bit out. Somehow Ethereum seems yeah. to be passing passing the test, uh, at least no, on no, the no. decentralization yeah. front. But yeah, go ahead. Let's hear it. But that's a misconception, right? So yesterday I had someone say to me, well, Ethereum is not a security. It was one SEC commissioner who made that statement that he personally, based on his professional judgment, does not believe Ether is a security. But there is no official statement from the agency saying Ethereum is not deemed a security. Therefore, have at it. That that has never happened. Yeah, it hasn't been said. I would argue that it's been implied by several statements, even from what I heard Jay Clayton say a few weeks ago in person. But, you know, it, again, that that was not sort of on the record. That was not explicit at all about Ethereum. It's one individual. It's not an official statement. That's right. And I think what you and I have spoken about before, there's a big difference between Bitcoin 
and everything else. And I'm not making any value judgments on Bitcoin. I'm simply speaking about the law as it stands. It is very clear where the SEC, the CFTC, the IRS, and others sit on the treatment of Bitcoin as a financial asset. That has been defined. All of these other assets, there are ideas, but there are no official, substantive, and sort of... uh, endorsed statements. And so to me, it's very risky to take one statement made by one individual who represents a broader agency in the context of a country that is in the midst of, you know, a very bipartisan shift. Um, And There's a lot of risk in that interpretation. The second component is even if the assets themselves are deemed not to be securities, when you create a financial product and you try to sell that to retail investors, everything changes. That's right. And everyone's trying to go after retail. I tell you, I promise you this, Meltem prediction, in the year 2019, there will be no crypto product that is approved for any retail investors. That ship has sailed because all these crazy people and all of the carnage of the last 12 months make it politically, personally, and professionally infeasible for any agency to give any sort of endorsement for a retail product. U.S. agency or agency in general? I agree with you if it's U.S. U.S., I would be surprised if it happened in the developed world in general outside of Switzerland. Yeah. Because the Swiss don't give a damn. <laughs> Do they in <laughs> never Singapore? Have, never will. I don't know. Singapore, I could see too, but I haven't been following the uh, jurisdictional developments that closely. But so the two things that I've heard from projects, forget what people at the SEC are saying, but the two things I've heard from projects who I've been working with are that they are worried about being able to prove a level of decentralization And that could mean any number of things we don't know yet, right? Like that could mean how the project is set up, the funding scenario. Uh, That could mean who's contributing to the project. Is it open source? Do they have people outside of the project committing code? That could mean any number of things. But the decentralization of it and also the utility of it. And, uh, you know, to go back just for a second to, to what... Jay Clayton and others have said is they've often made this parallel to pre-selling tickets to a show. And what they say is if you pre-sell tickets and then the show happens and then you use your ticket to get into the show, that's not a security. But if the show never happens and it was just, you know, a speculative investment and maybe or maybe not the show is going to happen, the ticket price is going to go up, then that starts to look a little bit more shady. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all actually shakes out. And it's also going to be interesting to see these projects starting to play this little bit of cat and mouse game as they try and solve for these two two issues. But these issues don't exist in isolation. So if we go back to a topic we've talked about before, in fact, just on our last podcast, pardon, about sustainable funding in a declining token price environment. At the end of the day, the fundamental problem with most crypto projects is this. They proclaim not to be companies. They're foundations, they're networks, they're loosely organized entities that defy traditional corporate form. And therefore, they don't want to be subject to the same rules and laws that any corporation would, i.e., securities laws in terms of how they raise capital for their efforts. But the fundamental challenge these businesses are having, and they are, in fact, in most cases, businesses because they have employees, they have salaries, they have fixed expenses, they make investments, they acquire PP&E, and so on and so forth. The fundamental challenge is most of them will have to pivot to a sustainable business model that requires them earning some sort of revenue or fee payment as revenue. And so here we are, we're in a situation where all these people said, we're not companies, we're networks and protocols, which defy the laws of the theory of the firm. It defies everything you know about the corporate form. It doesn't apply to us. Hence why we have utility tokens and not stock. These things are fundamentally different. But at the same time, what's happening in this price environment is a function of the market and a function of some of what we're learning about raising capital through this form. It doesn't really work effectively in most cases in a isolated sort of market environment. It only works in a rising price environment where tokens appreciate in 
perpetuity. And that's not the reality. Markets operate in cycles. And so I think at the same time, this security versus utility token narrative is developing, we have a bunch of companies who are realizing that the way they set themselves up, the way they organize, the way they thought about governance and managing capital, and the way they thought about aligning incentives fundamentally doesn't work. And they need to go back to the one tried, tested, you know, time, uh, <laughs> time true form. It's their companies, their corporations, their and their firms. And so when those two things start happening and people realize, oh, these things are in fact firms and these things that they sold in fact were intended to fund the growth of the for- firm in the way that equity capital may have been used, then really tokens just become another abstraction of, of equity capital. And we're starting to see that shift with a lot of projects uh, choosing to turn their tokens into one of two things. Number one, in some cases, they're choosing to turn them into equity ownership or some sort of stake in the business, whether that's entitlement to future revenue stream or or pure equity ownership. And in other cases, we see them going kind of the opposite route where they say, actually, what you bought is a membership or a subscription that entitles you to future services. And then they book it as revenue. That's what EOS did. They booked their token sale as revenue income. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be funny with all of this hype that we've had over the last six months or so around security tokens. It'll be funny if last year's utility tokens wind up being this year's security tokens. And they 100% will. Because again, at the end of the day, if you operate in the borders of the United States of America and its territories, you are subject to US securities law. You're subject to US tax law. You're subject to US corporate law. You have built not a protocol, not a network. You've built a company. You are running a company company with no revenue model. (laughs) Exactly. Ergo... The people who gave you millions of dollars are going to at some point wake up, especially as they start taking zeros on their balance sheet in other places where they have less of a grip. If you issued in the US, those people have far more money than you do, little project. They have far more experience being predatory than you do, little project. And they will come back and they will want their pound of flesh. Which brings me back to basis where we started, even if they do refund investors, even if they do manage to somehow weather 2019 and wind this all down without incident, that team, if I were them, I'd be very concerned about the potential risk of a lawsuit. Yeah. I think that if you raised money in this fashion and you're not preparing yourself for some kind of lawsuit, like, frankly, you know, you should lawyer up because it's coming. And, you know, the lawsuit may not make, the lawsuit may not even be coherent. It may just be some, you know, some angry investors just, you know, railing against the system and and what happened in 2018, just looking to get some of their own back. But uh, I would, I would expect it to be coming. And, you know, that I would say goes even more for projects that raised through sort of a public presale style ICO or raised through one of these really big party rounds where just like every angel and his brother got involved even more so than than like the basis style it's not going to be coming from the vc funds i don't think that was very direct chill <laughs> Okay. But but to that point, so we've talked about projects, we've talked about regulators, we've talked a bit about investors. Let's talk briefly about our favorite topic, the institutions. The institutions coming. are coming. The institutions Nobo- are coming. <laughs> All right, Paul Revere, ca- calm down over there. Um, so no- Nova, Mike Novogratz, uh, CEO of Galaxy, he said, hey, you know what? It's not going to be 2018, but Q2 2019, they're coming for sure. You know what I believe? The institutions are not coming. The back to launch is going to keep getting pushed back and pushed back. Other institutional efforts to launch in the space are going to keep getting pushed back and pushed back or cut down in scope and size until they're really minuscule. The institutions are not coming because we are entering the trough of pain. We are entering winter. We are entering a fundamental existential crisis in every other asset except for Bitcoin and possibly even in Bitcoin. Like we saw in 2015, when I first started working again professionally in this crazy world of funhouse mirrors and rallies and crashes. If I get another crypto newsletter this week entitled Crypto Winter is Coming, I'm going to kill someone. But 
you know, it's, it's, <laughs> let, let me hasten that. Let me hasten the demise of some of these individuals by forwarding you some more. <laughs> pass, hard pass. But you know, it's consensus for a reason. And as, as Bitcoin proves, if enough people choose to believe something, it manifests and crypto winter is definitely manifesting itself. And, you know, I think, I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because what is the first thing to get cut at big institutions is experimental projects as soon as times get a little bit tough. And especially if that experimental project was in a space that has since been cut by, you know, 80, 90% of its, its total market value and therefore total market opportunity, it's not going to look good. You know, I, I hope and I think that institutions like Fidelity with the leadership of Abby Johnson, who's been following mm-hmm. the space for a while, mm-hmm. like I think that institutions like that may have some staying power, just like Cumberland did with DRW over the last several years. Like it would have been easy for them to have shut up shop and folded as well. I, so I think that a handful of them will stay and will set themselves up very well for the long haul. But I agree. I think that most of them, you know, they're not going to be allocating more resources to the space. Here, But here's also the other hard part. Um, a lot of what we've talked about is this existential crisis. And I got a lot of heat when in early November, I went on CNBC and I said, we're in the midst of a crypto crisis. It's a crisis of faith. It's a realignment of expectations. All of these experiments we were running that we overcapitalized and sold to the public, we're now realizing... Dude, why would you say that on CNBC? That's not the narrative, man. The narrative is the virus is spreading. <laughs> XRP the standard. No, because, because, because what's important <laughs> to me, look, and, and I'm an asset manager, but... What's important to me, the reason we didn't launch any funds in 2018, the reason we aren't going on TV saying, bye, 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 this is a great time, this is a great time, BTFD, is because of of this. And this is the fundamental issue with institutions and this market and everything. There comes a time in every narrative, in every story, in every person's personal sort of journey where you have to take a hard look in the mirror and face the reality of what's happening. And there is a reality that we have to face in crypto is we've created this environment based on stories. These are ideas, they're stories, they're make-believe. The empirical evidence does not substantiate these stories in over 99% of cases. This idea of fat protocols, this idea of app coins and utility tokens is completely unsubstantiated. The idea of decentralized apps, yes, it's early, but it's not early enough to see that this market is nowhere near ready. It's not going to materialize all of a sudden out of thin air. We said that about Bitcoin you know, in 2015. I remember people sitting down with me when we were at Digital Currency Group allocating capital. And people would sit down with me and say, oh yeah, it's just around the corner. It's going to happen. It still hasn't happened. And we have to be honest because if we're not honest and truthful, you will never regain that trust. And relationships, assets, life is about trust. And these institutions, institutional investors, family offices, they're smarter than you think. I am appalled by people who show me their pitch decks, who talk to me about their fundraise. They truly believe that the people they're raising capital from are idiots. And these people are not. They're extremely sophisticated, extremely intelligent individuals. They may not know crypto, but they know people, they know investments, and they know more about markets than you probably ever will. And frankly, probably than I ever will. There are a lot of extremely intelligent people managing these books. And so to me, what we've done over the last 18 months has has to get unwound. There is no way out of it in 2019. We have to do the time for the crime. Yeah. And I mean, the unfortunate thing is that a lot of those who committed the crime of overpromising, of, you know, operating downright frauds and scams of whatever it is, they're nowhere to be found now. You know, the the James Altikers of the world come to mind. The guy who is peddling, you know, his get rich quick schemes, he's moved on to other things. And it's the schmucks like you and me who are actually in this, you know, for... I think hopefully some of the right reasons and certainly, you know, 
in it to stick around and stay and, and do the building. And, you know, as you put it to me earlier, like in it for life, in it for our careers, we're the ones who have to pick up the pieces. But it's always been that way. And that's fine. What's interesting is I actually listen to, um, I never listen to podcasts, et cetera. But recently I was just thinking that podcasts are actually really fun little time capsules. I went back and listened to podcasts I recorded in in June with Pomp. I went back to something I wrote in March. I went something back to something I wrote in my own notebook um, last October. Nothing in my view has changed. Nothing I've communicated publicly has changed. I feel like I've been fairly consistent and realistic with myself and my media circle. And um there are, yes, some errors in judgment I made and I try to own those errors in judgment and I try to own those mistakes because I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm constantly learning and developing and evolving. But I feel like right now people are doubling down on things that they know not to be true. They're doubling down on these intellectual fallacies and these intellectual lies and these little half-truths they tell themselves because it's too painful to face the existential reality that maybe this stuff doesn't work. Maybe we were totally wrong and we have to kill this and start over. And it could be an iteration of the existing hypothesis, or it could be a complete rejection of this family of hypotheses and a a restart. But that's what experimentation is. You can't just blindly will something into being. And this is what kind of bothers me. I'm going to ruffle some feathers here, but I'm going to do it. This is what kind of bothers me about the Bitcoin maximalist crowd is that they just stick to their guns about what Bitcoin is, what Bitcoin should be to a point where I think that it alienates people. It leaves no room. It leaves. And, and they're so it, rude to newcomers. It's, it, it horrifies me. There should be room for everyone. That's and, the point. You know, for, forget, like, I agree, firstly, but, you know, forget even the sort of attitude issues that can crop up. But even just like to be intellectually honest about this space is to admit that none of us know what we're doing, that none of us knows for certain what this is going to be. And my big pushback on the whole thing, I'm not convinced of this, but I think that there's a distinct possibility that blockchain never eats the world, that this isn't the next internet, that this isn't the next wave of software and computing, that it winds up being a relatively niche, but no less important technology, just in the same way that most other decentralized technologies are, like Tor and BitTorrent and what yep. have you. But you know, it, when when I have these conversations with other people who I respect greatly in the space, I get this pushback of like, oh, well, then what are you even doing here? You don't respect the vision. Well, this is this is exactly the the point. For ideas to grow and to scale, they have to evolve and become inclusive of more and more people. And I've talked about this at length for the last three years and been shunned and called names and been told I'm stupid. But at the end of the day, the fundamental truth is if you want an idea to grow and spread, it has to become accessible and more and more inclusive. Think of and be socially scalable. Exactly. But so socially scalable, meaning it has to be adversarial in its nature and its design, right? Um, But I think the other aspect of it that's really important is it has to be exclusive and it has to be capable of technically scaling, number one, but also ideologically scaling. And the hard part is, is when you define Bitcoin and crypto inside such a narrow and inaccessible box that doesn't, it's incongruent with most people's mental models and how they understand the world as we live in to exist, you isolate them. And they may look at at it momentarily. You know, greed really for the last 18 months has been the use case driving adoption and interest. And when greed is gone over the next 12 to 18 months, as we move from one cycle into another cycle, we're going to see who's left. And my view is and has always been personally, I have, I could care less if these things are worth millions of dollars or nothing. 
personally, Melton talking. Professionally, yes, I obviously want these assets to appreciate in value and to continue to become more useful and for this asset class to grow. But personally, the point isn't getting rich. The point is having choice. The point is creating tools for people in situations that need them to be able to rely on this technology, to be able to rely on this network. Until we achieve that, we haven't accomplished anything. This is an idea. And none of us are actually going to be able to get rich in a sustainable way until we accomplish some of that. I could not There's agree There's no easy money to be made, at least not over the long term. Sure, you can pump, you can dump, you can whatever, but not in a sustainable way. And at the end of the day, it's always going to catch up with us. We're going to spend the next 12 to 18 months paying for the sins of the community. And I got sucked into the hype. We all played a part in it by signing terrible term sheets, by you know lending credibility to, to projects that, on second glance, probably you know were, were think not on worth. your sins. <laughs> I'm okay. saying that to myself. No, think look, on my sins. No, it's okay. I just think we. We take personal responsibility, but that also means that we have to do the hard work. And sometimes the hard work is, let's go back to the drawing board. But I think to, to sort of wrap up this podcast and this week's topic, um, I think that the key takeaways here are there are, we live in a world that's defined by laws. And I go back to science, and I know I've talked to you about this before. The world of physical things is governed by three laws, the laws of thermodynamics. And they explain the relationships between uh, temperature, matter, and the state of entropy of a system or a state of order or disorder, right? And there's a fourth law which removes circular referencing, which is important. Likewise, financial systems in markets like the US and actually all over the world, businesses, they have fundamental rules and laws. And there are people whose sole job it is in life to write, interpret, and enforce those rules and laws. They've been doing it for decades. It's existed for hundreds of years. We need to learn how to cooperate and operate within that system if we want to continue doing things the way we have. That's reality. And what I would add to that is, you know, Suna, Suna over at Token Daily had a really great comment earlier this week, which said, we need to start writing like the future of this industry depends on people outside of it, understanding it and becoming interested yes. in it. Yes. And I think that, you know, if there's a common thread throughout this somewhat rambly conversation that we've just had here over the last 45 minutes, it's that... All of these people, institutions, regulators, you know, the the sort of common everyday man, the common everyday consumer of technology products, like we need to be thinking about how to reach them and those communities instead of continuing to talk to the same, you know, 2000 people on Twitter who yep. always participate in these conversations. Because if we want any incremental buyers to come back into this market, forget the altruism for a second. Even if we're just still going to go off of greed, if you want yeah, incremental capitalism. buyers... <laughs> greed is good, baby. If you want incremental buyers to come back into this market, though, it's not going to be any of the 2,000 people in your Twitter followers who are the same 2,000 people liking and retweeting and commenting on everything. It's going to be because regulators are understanding and interested in the space, not waving their hands and saying they don't have time for that hullabaloo. It's going to be because institutions actually have conviction behind what they're doing. And it's going to be because we're creating products that end users actually want. And we have yet to achieve any of those things because as a space, as an industry, crypto tends to just have disdain for all three of those categories. What we need is new heroes. What we need is new messengers. And what we need is new messages. And they're coming. I am very excited about some of the people who are growing in influence in our industry, some of the new people who are coming in who are very candid about maybe their lack of understanding or how new they are to this industry. But the great thing that I love about Bitcoin and just crypto generally, which I know you share, Elizabeth Stark at Lightning Labs, she and I talk about this a lot. It was our goal for Crypto Springs. Um, there are many other people I know in our industry share this view. 
it doesn't matter if you've been here one day or 10 years. You know, it doesn't matter if you're Satoshi or if you're just a person who got interested a minute ago. Every single person is critical to making this work. And so in order to do that, in order to make people feel like they are part of this movement, because it really is. It's a social, political, economic, technology-driven movement. It is. We have to make it accessible. We have to make it acceptable. And that means making people feel safe, making people feel like they can trust what's being said. Hence, why disclosure is so critical and so fucking important. I wish people would get that through their skulls, um, but apparently they can't. They just want to talk about my shitcoin portfolio. <laughs> it's, and it trust, trust and integrity is everything. That is what life, that's what humans operate on. It's time for us to grow up. It's time for us to grow up and also stop acting like this is a high school clicky cafeteria where whoever's been <laughs> around the longest is the coolest. I'll, I'll tell a very quick anecdote and then we can wrap this up, which is that a few years ago, I believe this was 2016, I was attending my first sort of like big crypto industry dinner. I'd been working full-time in the space for maybe six, nine months at this point. This was like early 2016. You were actually at this dinner, Meltem, I remember. And everyone went around and said like what they were doing, who they are, and how long they'd been in the space. And I was so embarrassed to have to admit at this dinner that I had bought my first Bitcoin in 2013 because I was like, oh God, I'm like the noob in the room. Everyone else had been in since like 2010, 2011, 2012. And that is such bullshit. No one should have to feel that way when they're coming into a space, especially if they've had extensive experience in these other sort of orthogonally related fields, it's time to grow up. But to just kind of put a bow on things, um, a lot of people who've been around this space, they got lucky. And to a certain degree, all of us have gotten lucky. But luck is not a repeatable formula for success. The only repeatable formula for success is learning and adapting as the game changes. The game is changing the way it changed in 2015. I watched it with my own eyes and a bunch of people who couldn't change were made irrelevant and left behind. But the game is always going to continue to change and evolve and new players are going to enter and players are going to leave. But as the game evolves, we have to adapt and evolve. And the game is changing. There are new games being played. There are new games being created. This is the beauty of markets. This is what we do. This is the meaning of human progress. It's what we spend our time on. It's it's what occupies our headspace. And so let's play a new game. This game isn't working. This game is done. And you'd better love the new game. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's not going to be pretty, because this but is it'll a be fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's always been fun. And I'll be right here and Jill, you promised me I could sleep on your couch. I now have a guest bedroom, so you no longer have to sleep on my couch. You can have your own whole bed and bath. Oh baby. Party luxury. on. Hashtag we'll luxury. <laughs> it's in the depths of Brooklyn, but it's there. <laughs> and with that, we should wrap this up. But it's been a great conversation, uh, if a little bit rambly. And, um, you know, hopefully there are some major takeaways here about what's going on, who the adjacent players are to the space and what we've got to do to uh, bring back the good times. Playing games, making moves, making new games. <laughs> Hi everyone, Meltem and Jill here. To find more episodes of What Grinds My Gears, go to grindmygears.co. Episodes go live every Tuesday morning, and you can find the links to the materials we reference in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to What Grinds My Gears so that more people can find this show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.